everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Forum, the dedicated podcast of the Diplomacy, Law, and Policy Forum. Today, I am joined by Mr. Mubashir Rizvi, who is a research associate and data analyst at the Research Society of International Law. He also holds expertise in the law of the sea. Thank you for being here, Mubashir. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. So today's discussion will be on maritime operations under IHL, or International Humanitarian Law. Just to contextualize this, this discussion, uh, Mubashir, could you please explain um, to the viewers why understanding the law of the sea or the international law of the sea, why that is uh, important, particularly in today's climate? Sure. And so, you know, I'd like to take you back a step and before understanding why, why the law of the sea is important, I think perhaps it's important for us to understand why the sea itself is important. Uh, you know, we we now live in a time where India recently landed on the uh, on the south pole of the moon. Uh, everyone is focusing on, you know, what warfare in space might look like. There have been a, a significant advancements in aerial warfare technologies and whatnot. But the oldest, uh, one of the oldest, uh, you know, frontiers. Uh, the sea still remains as important as it was, and if not even more important than uh, what it was before. You know, we've everyone we've we've heard about China's Belt and Road Initiative, how heavily that depends on uh, on uh, on the oceans. Recently, at the G20 summit, the IMEC, the India Middle East uh, uh, Economic Corridor, I, I think that's what the name is. Uh, was launched and that also passes through the Arabian Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So when you look at all of these things, you realize the sea even today is very important for the states. It's very important uh, and and mostly it's important because it's... Uh, see, all the bulky goods that we consume, whether, that's, whether those are related to energy or manufacturing, most of them are transported through the sea, uh, via the sea, right? And this is why the sea is very, very important. So, you know, and it's very important, I think, to understand. And this is the, and this importance is related to the economic security of a lot of states. And when you, when countries feel that their, their economic security is being threatened, then it becomes an issue of national security. And then the sea once again becomes a frontier of, uh, you know, maritime operations. Now, the days of uh, face-to-face naval warfare uh, have reduced significantly since the end of the Second World War, but that has not stopped countries from massively upgrading their naval uh, capacities. Uh, previously, the U.S. was the most powerful state in this domain. Recently, we've seen China is starting to uh, develop and upgrade its capabilities. India is doing the same. Other countries are following suit as well. So that just goes to show that even after you know so many years and so many advancements, uh, the sea still remains a very important frontier. It's really important that you contextualize um, the the relevance of alternative means of or alternative theaters of conflict, so to speak. You mentioned space, and you mentioned the ocean as being one of those uh, areas where uh, not only conflict becomes an increasing concern, but also national security, obviously uh, closely related to that. Um, so, just following from that line of thought. What are some of the more um, pressing current issues in the law of the sea that we uh, continue to see today? Right. Um, see, it depends. Again, the, the the interesting thing about the law of the sea uh, is, and in the oceans in general, is as 
countries that became become more and more technologically advanced and, and, and you know the same could be said for every every other domain as well uh, more and more challenges start popping up but some of them are as uh, some of them are still very traditional related to you know your boundaries etc and some of them are related to advancements that are being made in field and you previously also asked why is the law of the sea important right and i'll, I'll just want to I, i'll just like to just add a few points on that before we go on to some of the more contemporary issues Previously, a, a, a couple of hundred years back, the the best uh, people could do was navigate a few hundred, a few meters, or a few miles from the coast, right? And you could generally ensure your security on your maritime bound, uh, uh, boundaries. Now, countries have the capacity to creep up right up to your shore, a thousand miles away, and then you know do whatever they want. So that was the first issue, and this is one of the. This also leads to one of the first contemporary issues in the law of the sea: uh, boundary delimitations. And the issue here is not only that countries want to secure their maritime frontiers, but also where do those frontiers lie? You know, uh, we still have cases where states are arguing over uh, how much their territory should be. There are disputes, uh, maritime delimitation uh, disputes uh, ongoing right now between several different countries. And you might wonder how much of a difference does that make as long as another country is not attacking you, right? Uh, because your goal is to secure your frontier, so you know if you can do that, what what's the issue? The issue is because the sea is a huge. Uh, um, this the sea brings a lot of resources for the countries that control the sea, so to say, as per the law of the sea uh, regime. Now, what do I mean by that? When you are a littoral state, or if you have a coastline, you have certain rights and privileges with regards to the resources in the sea. So any oil that is found there. Fishing stocks, um, so and this is why countries are often even arguing for uh, very slight uh, deviations and in interpretations uh, in their interpretations uh, with regard to maritime boundaries. On the map, you might see, oh, this is only a few meters, but if you extend the few meters and you extend it all the way towards a country's uh, different uh, uh, maritime zones, such as their uh, specifically their um, exclusive economic zone then you see what the fuss is about so yeah this is why it's important some of and so that's that's one of the primary contemporary issue uh, some of the other issues then are um, piracy it's it's and it's not really a contemporary issue it's been going on for a, for a long long time it's just become much more modernized like everything else um recently there's been a lot of debate about deep seabed mining uh, for the longest time, countries have stated that uh, there's been a consensus uh, that you know it's a, that's a common heritage of mankind, just like space was a while back. But now, when states have realized they have the capabilities to exploit and explore this uh, shared uh, shared humanitarian resource, they realize, okay, why not make some money out of it? So that is, and this is again where countries from the developing world they are much more reluctant uh, because they don't have the capacities to exploit these resources. Um, so, so, and again, to, now when we think of this issue, it becomes an issue of, let's suppose, climate, environment, sustainability, and that's also something the law of the sea covers. You know, there are limits to how much you can fish, what you can fish. Uh, there are, and in that regard, what I've always found very fascinating is there's all, there, are, there are also provisions which, you know, think about landlocked states, how much do they get, what rights do they get? um that's another issue that's that often comes up sometimes uh but i think the primary issue which can potentially lead to and when we're thinking in in terms of the uh in terms of the the, the conversation we're having 
is related to delimitation, understanding of these delimitations and how countries seek to enforce their perspective. Uh, so, for example, one of the most contentious issues is in the South China Sea, uh, where China and all the other littoral states in the region uh, have disagreements on how the delimited, how the maritime boundaries should be drawn. Now, to enforce them, uh, sometimes you'll see one country, um, you know, do a very aggressive maneuver against the fishermen of another country, right, and trying to enforce what their what their what their perspectives are. Um, other some some countries, the only capacity they have is to you know protest, and they can only give statements. Other countries, which are more powerful, and this is specifically true with the Western Bloc and and the U.S., is they conduct what they call freedom of navigation operations or FONOPs for short. So any time where they feel that you know a country's uh, interpretation of the law of the sea is not aligned with their own interpretation, they'll just can they'll just pass their warship through that area just to say, oh, we don't agree with you. And previously this was fine, but now we see countries becoming more, uh, as countries like India and China are becoming more powerful, they are starting to push back against this. And that again brings another contemporary issue. Uh, and I think some of, uh, perhaps one of the most contentious ones, uh, especially when we consider the, the position and the power of China and the US in the global system. All right, yeah, so I think um, these, the I mean you you did mention quite a few um not even quite a few of issues with um the law of the sea and how it pertains to um you know national security concerns but then also how it relates to economic security so you mentioned deep sea wet mining um and you also mentioned the sort of dichotomy or not even the dichotomy but the different approaches that developing states and developed states may have um and obviously very recently we had the the convention on uh the the bdnj convention on the biological yeah. diversity beyond national jurisdiction which aims to conserve um, biodiversity and marine genetic resources in the high seas and we know um throughout history the high seas have largely been unregulated um, when it comes to the law of the sea and that's just because the, the nature of the, the distance from uh, the coast uh, of the high seas themselves but also just the sheer vastness of the high seas and only recently have you know more developed states actually um, you know garnered that technology to then go out into the high seas and exploit the minerals there um, that may have useful uses uh, may have uh, beneficial uses I should say um, but again, that does leave um, developing states at the sort of at the bottom rung of the ladder. Um, so and if I if I can again, sorry if I can just uh, add one one thing to that, and you know I I'm just as you were speaking, I was wondering not even, what if we even leave the high seas? Let's suppose right. Even if let's suppose a developing uh, state has oil resources in its in its uh, territorial waters or its exclusive economic zone. Uh, it doesn't have the capacity. So I think even with the with the riches that the sea brings, it also, I think, opens developing states up to new kinds of, uh, you know, I don't want to use the word colonialism, but uh, I, I guess influence and exploitation by countries that have the capacity to exploit these resources. And obviously there is there is sharing with regards to the the output and the wealth generated, but still they're just they're just so dependent. Um, so it, it makes you wonder that, you know, 
uh, it's always been the developing states, interestingly, uh, and particularly in the law of the sea, who, who've been pushing back at some of these things and and, uh, and how to protect what they believe uh, they should have some level of control over. So um, I now want to shift this conversation to an IHL perspective and just wanted to ask you, um, in terms of maritime operations, what, what are some of the ways we've seen states conduct these uh, maritime operations? You've mentioned a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, coastal states having disputes over the delimitations. Do maritime operations, um, you know, appear uh, in those conflicts or in those sort of disagreements between states and how do they manifest themselves? Right, that's an interesting question. And I think to understand this, we also need to see how the international system has evolved as well as how naval warfare and naval warfare technology has evolved over the years. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, the most significant deployment of naval resources was during the Second World War. Since then, we haven't really seen a large scale naval war erupt between a group of states. There have been skirmishes. There has been the odd occasion where countries have put their navies in, in, in localized context. Um, but generally not to the level where they were uh, previously. And this is where I feel uh, there, we probably need to look at the, so, so let me just add something here. You know, naval warfare started from what you would envision to be a face-to-face -face conflict between two ships facing together, each other, right? Now, as the, uh, states became more technologically advanced, the distance between ships increased. Then after some time you realize, oh, one ship doesn't even have to be visible anymore. So countries shifted to submarines. Then came the aircraft carriers where you could essentially carry your entire air force to another state which would be thousands of miles away. Now there is another concept that's being developed and countries are working on it that's called uh, UUVs. Uh, it's unmanned under vehicle, uh, underwater vehicles. And how so essentially you, you might want to think of these as underwater drones. Uh, how can these be um, deployed at, uh, you know, at a time of war, uh, during a time of war? But, you know, the law of the sea developed significantly during the 70s and the 80s. Since then, uh, but, and, you know, if, uh, if, I, if I may become the interviewer, so to say, or the host for or while I know you have significant experience in um, IHL, I'm just wondering, um, and that's if you, if you can share whether you know the principles of international humanitarian law do like I I know you have distinction proportionality etc. But how do they apply, and if so, how do they apply? Yeah, so um, with international humanitarian law or IHR, I think it's also important to contextualize um, how that has developed uh, in terms of the law of the sea. You mentioned that the law of the sea itself. Uh, you know, really picked up pace in the 70s and the 80s. Um, but we don't see the same necessarily with the uh, international humanitarian law governing um, maritime operations or naval warfare. Um, so you have some, some semblance of the, the rules that you mentioned, proportionality, distinction, and precaution in customary international humanitarian law. Um, and that basically extends those same principles that you cannot target civilian ships, you cannot target, for example, uh, medical ships uh, during uh, the conduct of maritime operations, um, and you need to minimize or you need to seek to, basically you need to ensure that civilian casualties are not excessive in relation to the military advantage that you gain, so that's a principle of proportionality. 
um, you had the first attempts at codifying um, a law governing maritime operations um, in the first Hague Conventions, right? Um, and you had Convention 10 of the Hague Conventions, uh, which adapted these, these same principles to, to maritime warfare, distinguishing between ma uh, military ships and uh, civilian ships. Those same conventions tackled um, sporadic areas of uh, maritime operations. So you had, for example, the protection of the sick, wounded, and shipwrecked, um, and uh, the protection of, I mean, uh, there was also illegality of laying underwater mines. So that was also within the Hague Conventions. But again, um, I, the international community felt that these conventions were very quickly falling out of date. Um, and so you had uh, the next round of conventions, or maybe the more important ones uh, in, in our discussions today, which were the Geneva Conventions. And the Geneva Conventions came about in 1949. And you have a dedicated convention on uh, the amelioration of the condition of wounded, sick, and shipwrecked members of armed forces at sea. Um, and this effectively replaced Hague Convention number 10. Um, again, this does not necessarily govern how operations are to be conducted at sea. Rather, it governs how we must treat those who are shipwrecked or wounded at sea and what uh, their rights uh, are, as well as what the obligations of states are when they are dealing with shipwrecked members of armed forces. Can I, can uh, I just add, ask you something over here? Because, and I was thinking about it when you were talking about the, the, the hate convention. See, because a, a lot of the emphasis has been on civilians protecting civilians. And, you know, as you rightfully said, uh, like caring for the wounded, the shipwrecked, etc., and non-combatants. What if there are two combatant ships? And, you know, if someone fires a bullet at you, do you blow their entire warship uh, up and kill or 100 and 150, however many crew members they, they might be on board? How does, do, does, does IHL as it stands today have any provisions in that regard? Or does it do, or has it attempted to, you know, perhaps deal with some of these issues? Yeah, so I think you, you raise, a, raise an important point that, of course, we know that a fundamental principle of IHL is distinguishing between a military target and civilians who you cannot target, right? But then another uh, fundamental principle is the principle of proportionality. With regards to the princ principle of proportionality, we should also contextualize this with um, developments in um, IHL as it pertains to maritime operations. So we have the San Remo Manual, which came about in the 1990s. And what that did was it um, sort of restates the applicable IHL principles to maritime operations. It's a non-binding document, right? But it still provides some guidance to states when they are conducting maritime operations. And one of those, um, or at least some of those principles do include proportionality. So um, that essentially means that whatever collateral damage um, may be foreseen when conducting a particular military operation, the, the damage to uh, civilian infrastructure or um, civilian civilians or non-combatants generally is not excessive to the military advantage that is gained when conducting that um, operation. Again, the San Remo Manual does not necessarily explain this in much detail. Rather, it does say that you must take certain precautions when you are about to launch an attack. For example, you need to warn uh, a particular ship that um, you know you are going to launch an attack 
for example, if you believe that a hospital ship or a civilian ship is actually secretly carrying, for example, military uh, objectives or maybe carrying weapons and those ships may be used to launch attacks um, at a military ship, you can also warn them and say that, listen, we're going to, we, we believe that you are not actually a civilian ship or you're not necessarily a hospital ship and we have uh, reason to believe that you are, you know, um, actually a military ship and we're going to attack you. Similarly, um, there are principles uh, with the use of certain weapons. Um, so for example, there are excessive rules on how uh, uh, states, if they are to, for example, lay underwater mines, what those mines actually, uh, what uh, or how those mines should actually be designed. So they should not necessarily be designed to go off automatically. And after a certain period of time, those mines should themselves sort of be neutralized so that they don't just randomly go off uh, after a conflict has ceased. Um, so, I mean, the Sandra Manual does uh, really uh, encapsulate a lot of these principles and it does provide a lot of detail on how, um, you know, uh, how these IHL principles, including the principle of proportionality you talked about, how they apply. Um, but again, it's uh, it's interesting to note that you see the same basic fundamental principles of IHL as they apply to conflict on land, um, apply to um, the maritime operations. And again, what the San Remo Manual does is it applies those within the framework of the law of the sea convention, the, uh, the UNCLOS. Um, and so it also sets out what duties, for example, a territorial state might have, or if if a territorial state's waters are being used by other parties for a conflict, what duties do those states have? So I think it's really important that we also understand that um, it is a positive development in, in IHL pertaining to maritime operations. But again, what we're also seeing is that it is also sort of falling out of, uh, it's, I mean, it is, there are certain developments in maritime operations that do yeah. uh, shed light on perhaps the shortcomings of the Sandemo Manual. And you you mentioned that a bit earlier, uh, you know, with the development of uh, UUVs, um, those are again, autonomous weapons. And we see a lot of discussions with autonomous weapons um, just happening generally uh, within the international community and their relevance within IHL and how IHL principles should apply to govern the use of um, autonomous weapons and the use of artificial intelligence generally uh, when uh, when uh, you know um, conducting maritime operations. Um, so I think that is one yeah, important because, to Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because I was wondering, uh, you know, so you said the San Remo manual came out in the nineties, and things are developing at such a rapid pace. I've been like. I've been casually observing some of the discussions on uh, IHL and cyberspace, IHL and autonomous weapons, um, you know, drones and like I said earlier, UUVs. How that how IHL would apply here. So it's it's very interesting, and I'm just wondering. So how does it work? Do let's suppose states were to agree with something that deals with IHL and cyberspace, would that also then apply to? using the cyberspace for naval maritime operations or would there need to be a separate discussion on that or similarly for autonomous weapons because when you think about autonomous weapons now we just think about killer robots or drones in the sky but i don't know whether these conversations are also happening with regards to maritime operations so do you, if you happen to know anything about that like 
please do share. I mean, what I do know so far is that um, the international community is struggling to reach a consensus on how uh, artificial intelligence or uh, you know lethal autonomous weapon systems should be governed under the ISL framework. A lot of states are also saying that we should ban these weapons completely and that you know their use can never fall under the the scope of IHL. Like you cannot control uh, or you cannot guarantee that, for example, a particular uh, UUV will necessarily hit its target if, for example, there is a malfunction, um, you know, in the navigation system or in the communication system between the operator and the actual weapon itself. Um, so I think the primary uh, issue is how do we hold states accountable for the malfunctioning of these these weapons and if things go wrong or if violations of IHL do occur, what is uh, our course of action to hold those who are operating these weapons um, accountable? Um, so particularly with, uh, I'm not I'm not sure if these discussions are particular with maritime operations. I do know that they are generally happening about lethal autonomous weapons uh, as a whole. Um, similarly with cyberspace, you mentioned, um, you know, there are increasing conflicts uh, occurring in cyberspace, and that also applies to maritime operations because obviously your entire navigation system, your communication system, that relies on some form of computer system on 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 board your ships. And so, how does um, that fare into the principles of IHL? If, for example, um, the, the the enemy belligerent state, uh, you know, hacks into your navigation system, and uh, you know. I'm not, I'm not too sure of the technicalities, but if uh, it sets uh, the course of your UUVs uh, awry, you know, how does that sort of fall under the scope of IHL? So there, there are definitely a lot of discussions that need to be made with um, the, develop, the, the very rapid developments, I would say, in um, just, uh, you know, armed conflict operations as a whole. One other thing I think we should consider is the fact that increasingly what we're seeing is conflict are increasingly taking place between states and non-state actors. Yeah. And what IHL... Uh... And I think in the context of the... Just, just to interrupt you for a second, I think in the context of IHL... Uh, oh, sorry, in the context of the ocean, uh, specifically when we consider piracy operations, although there are... Like, you do have a right to, you know, stop pirates, but uh, I've, I've always wondered what protections do these individuals have who are essentially committing a crime or maybe when it's uh, not even let's suppose not even pirates non-state actors we know non-state actors have uh, and you know interestingly non-state actors uh, it's easier for them somewhat easier for them to con conduct low-level kinetic operations because you don't really need a huge warship so how do how how might IHL then apply in this case so that's also something that you know uh, would be interesting to learn about. We have seen in the past several non-state armed groups have naval branches, or they've definitely had um, some uh, capacity to conduct maritime operations. You had the Yemeni Houthi rebels, the Tamil Tigers of Sri Lanka, uh, the Philippines New People's Army, all have used maritime operations in, in their respective conflicts. Um, with uh, non-state actors, we need to understand that IHL differentiates between international armed conflicts or IACs and non-international armed conflicts, yeah. NIAC. Um, 
these two forms of conflicts have two different um you know sets of rules you have the majority of ihl at least in the geneva conventions and then you also have the addition the first additional protocol to the geneva conventions applying to um international armed conflicts and historically those have been the the main type of conflicts that have occurred right states fighting with each other yeah. that's what you would you would um you colloquially refer to as a war right but with um with the advent of not even the advent with increasing NIACs occurring, so increasing conflicts between non-state actors and states, or even between non-state actors uh, themselves, um, those have uh, posed certain challenges to IHL. You have common Article 3 to the Geneva Conventions, which applies to non-international armed conflicts, and that basically lists down um, a list of protections that uh, states must afford to, um, not even states, but like belligerent parties must afford to um, the other state. And you also have the second additional protocol um, to the Geneva Conventions, which applies strictly to non-international armed conflicts that occur between a state and a non-state armed group. Now, what the issue is with these two uh, different frameworks, so you have common article three and the framework it lays down and additional protocol two, the framework it lays down. These two frameworks, although they're, they're supposed to apply generally to non-international armed conflicts, they set different thresholds for their applicability. So while common Article 3's framework may apply to some um, you know, non-international armed conflicts, the same protections under additional protocol 2 may not apply. And that is just because of the, the different thresholds that are set. So you have to establish a minimum, uh, uh, you need to set a minimum level of organization of the non-state armed group in question. And that is much higher in additional protocol too, where the non-state armed group has to a certain, uh, sorry, has to assert a level of territorial control that will allow it to conduct sustained military operations. That's a very high threshold, specifically when we're talking about, um, you know, even low level uh, uh, NIACs, um, where that threshold may not necessarily apply, but you def you do have uh, casualties occurring, and so you need. Um, you need to have a framework that uh, adapts to um, even those uh, conflicts where the non-state actor may not necessarily have such power or such territorial control where it can conduct sustained military operations, but at least um, you can ascertain that um, it is conducting military operations to a great yes. scale. It's beyond just an internal uh, disturbance or just beyond, for example, a riot or you know, a violent protest uh, within the jurisdiction of a state. So I think that is one issue with, um, you know, in, uh, that is definitely one issue that we are seeing with uh, maritime operations occurring today is that with increasing non-state armed groups, how do the common article three frameworks and additional protocol two frameworks apply? Can they apply simultaneously? Um, if they cannot, uh, you know, how do we ensure the real-time applicability of these frameworks to minimize, you know, civilian harm and to um, ensure greater accountability for uh, violations of IHL conducted either by the states or even by non-state actors in question here. Um, and you know, so when when you were, when you were saying all this, I was thinking, okay, you're speaking as an IHL person, and specific spe specifically when you spoke about. Uh, sustained military operations, right? So I'm like, okay, that's IHL speak. So me as someone with an IR and a lot, like 
an IR background with more focused research on national security issues, I'm thinking, okay, what, what if it's not sustained? What do I do then? How do I respond then? And I think um, what, what, what I was also thinking was that makes conversations perhaps like the ones we, we are having now very important where people from two different but over potentially overlapping areas of law and other yeah. global governance structures engage in these conversations because you cannot have these rules apply in silos. You can say, okay, IHL says this, but my national security concerns or some other thing might be completely different. And as you very rightfully said, the threshold is very high. So what do I do then? Do I just sit silently? Uh, maybe it's just a small coastal village that's been sheltering people. And I know there's only 10 militants, but there's 100 civilians. But what do I do? Every every few weeks they come in and launch an attack on one of my ports. What do I do? So it's it's very interesting. And I think it's very challenging as well, particularly from, from both perspectives, from an ideal perspective, but also with regards to how a state responds to these challenges. Yeah. Um, again, I think just to contextualize this whole uh, discussion, we've you know raised several issues with uh, IHL, particularly contemporary issues, and how they need to, or at least the international community should try and reach a consensus on how this applies to not just you know land-based context but also maritime context. And we are seeing um, you know, increasing NIACs, We are seeing cyber warfare. And we're seeing the use of autonomous weapons. I think these are the main challenges to um, uh, to IHN in general, but also specifically to um, how IHN applies to maritime operations. Um, with that, I think it is time to conclude this discussion. This was uh, this was a wonderful conversation with you, Mubashar, and um, I thank you for your time. Uh, and please stick around. Uh, this is to the viewers. Please stick around for future episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ras. I definitely learned a lot about IHL and naval operations. Thank you.